body. May I add my word of welcome to you as well. If you're visiting, a special welcome to you. And again, folks, you know the, you know the drill. If there's someone that's around you or uh, well, not, maybe not even be around you, but someone that you haven't met before, make sure you grab them by the hand and give them a big welcome before they depart here today. That would be great. Great. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Romans 14. That's where we are today. 14 and 15. It's a huge passage. I'm not going to read it all, but uh, hopefully read a few verses for you to sort of whet your appetite and uh, for us to actually hear what the Lord's saying to us in this passage. So Romans chapter 14, and I'm going to read from verse 1. Good place to start. Uh, down to about verse 8, I think it will be, and then I'll read a couple from verse 15. So Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Except those, sorry, except the one whose faith is weak, without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand... For the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of the, both the, the dead and the living. I'm going to leave it there from verse 14. Come down, to verse, uh, come down to chapter 15 with me. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbour for their good and build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insulted you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other, that, each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God great words powerful words and we need the Lord to unpack that for us and break the bread for us so that we can receive from him let's just pray together father we continue our worship together and you are the focus so Lord again we don't have to welcome you here you are here Lord and it's just we stand in awe and we're humbled by the fact that you long to be with us perhaps more than we long to be with you but here you are, you're in our midst. And so, Lord, we ask that you just have your way, continue to do your work, transforming us, Lord, to be more like Jesus. 
So speak to us, Lord. May we have the courage and the humility to respond in any way that you call us to as you speak to our hearts and as you knock on the door of our hearts, as you touch those areas in our lives that's between you and us and me, then, uh, Lord, may we uh, have those hearts that are off, uh, soft and open to hear and to act under your guidance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm sure we've all heard the saying. You're probably able to complete it for me. If it wasn't so serious, it would be... Oh, you haven't heard that, have you? If it wasn't so serious, it would... I think, oh, I've got it right. If it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. It'd be funny, be humorous. The trouble is, it is serious. Let me read you this story. In Dwight Pentecost's commentary on the book of Philippians... He refers to an occurrence of a church split in Dallas, Texas. A local newspaper reporter did some investigating on the cause of this church split and apparently he actually did get it right. He discovered that it all started during a church dinner. And that's scary. We have a newcomer's lunch next week. Please pray. Apparently... One of the church elders was offended when the portion of food given to him was not as large as the young person next to him. Can you believe this? This is true. I know Dwight Pentecost, I think he's dead now, but he came to our church many years ago. Great preacher, great second coming preacher. This, is, this would obviously be a true story. Let me continue. So there was this offence by an elder when the portion of food given him was not as large as the young person sitting beside him. just want to say, if I get a piece of food on, if I get a portion of food during the newcomer's lunch, you can have it. <laughs> you can have it. I'll have yours. I'll have nothing. Please take it. This is the sad, sad part. This whole church split started because someone was offended over such a petty thing. Tragically, we know that these kinds of things do happen all too often and we know that Satan once again gets a smirk on us and sneers at us again for a time. However, what Christians do, what we need to understand as Christians is this, that Satan loves petty things. Because given the opportunity, which we sometimes unwittingly do, he will turn those petty things into explosive things, even to split and divide churches. Correct? And I wonder if this particular church in Dallas, Texas, had any understanding of what God was saying to them through Romans 14. For example, verse 1 that I've just read, Romans 14. Accept one another whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. And I want us to make a few comments about this verse. Firstly, firstly it's important to understand that, that what Paul is talking about here, well, if, what he's not talking about, he's not talking about someone who is weak or in terms of being vulnerable in their character, 
or vulnerable in their self-control and that they're weak in all of these areas and they're more prone to sin and temptation than anyone else. He's not talking about that kind of weakness here in this passage. But as the verse says, look at it again, accept one another whose faith is weak. Whose faith is weak. So these ones that we're reading about here in this passage in Romans are, are most likely new Jewish converts to Christ. And they're still coming to terms with what this Christian liberty is all about. What it means to be free in Christ. They're still coming to terms with this amazing new life that Jesus gives us versus all their previous religious rules and regulations regarding foods and diets and observances of special days and so forth and so on. Also, I want us to notice here in verse 1, that Paul uses the words disputable matters. I don't know what version you've got there. But if you've got other versions, you might have those words doubtful points. You might have the word opinions. Disputable matters or doubtful points or opinions. In other words, they are, as John Stott says in his commentary, John Stott, he says, secondary beliefs which are not part of the gospel. Nor are they matters on which scripture clearly pronounces. They're opinions, they're disputable matters. They, they're up, they're doubtful points. There's open for debate, if you like. And so the Apostle Paul calls upon the believers in Rome, particularly those who are more mature, those who are, more, those who are stronger in their faith, saying to them, accept one another then. Accept one another whose faith is weak without quarrelling over these opinions, over these disputable matters, over these debatable points. And I want you to notice that Paul ends this discussion, if you like, in chapters 15 and verse 7 in a similar way. So verse 1, chapter 14, accept one another, he says. Chapter 15, verse 7, accept one another then. Just as Christ accepted you. When I read that, it hit me hard. I just want to put a little flag beside that and ask you this question to ponder as we go through this message. How did Christ accept you? Can you remember? Where were you? Who were you? What were you doing? Where were you? All those questions. When Jesus accepted you and loved you. I guarantee that most of us, if not all of us, we weren't in a good place. But how good it would be if we as believers put these instructions, put this admonition into practice. Don't you think? How good it would be perhaps even to prevent fruitless arguments and church splits like the one that they had in Dallas. However, in reality on planet Earth, the reality is that we still have similar uh, problems today with what we might call the grey areas. Not this grey area, many of you can relate to that. But grey areas or opinions, we still have that debate going today. There are grey areas, there are opinions on things that we all hold dearly to or one way or another. But these are grey areas, these are, these are opinions or things that are not clearly right or wrong to every believer. Some things we know are wrong because the Bible clearly condemns them. Other things we know are right 
because God's word clearly commands them. But when it comes to those areas that are not clearly defined in scripture, we again find ourselves, and it's a good thing we do, we find ourselves calling out the Lord for his wisdom and guidance in these matters. Good thing that we do. So to help us along this journey, in these grey areas, these opinions that sometimes we wrestle with, I want to suggest, in the light of this passage that we're looking at today, Romans 1 to, to, uh, to 15, verse 7, in the light of this passage, I want, to con- I want us to consider three questions that would be helpful for each of us to ask ourselves. First question is this. Does the Bible condemn me doing this particular thing? Does the Bible condemn my doing this particular thing? You see, again, we do know absolutely that there are certain things, that there are certain practices which are clearly sinful and forbidden by God for his people to engage in. We know those things are black and white. And I'm sure that most of us here would, would have a fair idea about that. But let me just give you a brief few examples. For example, and by the way, as Paul also spoke about in Romans 13, he reminds us of these things in Romans 13, that we do know, um, we do know that it's wrong, for example, to murder. I mean, black and white, we know that that is wrong. There's no debate, there's no opinion about that. It's wrong to murder. We know it's wrong to steal. We know it's wrong to commit adultery. Now, that word we don't hear very often these days. Have you noticed that? And because I don't know why we don't hear it very often. Maybe you've got your own view on that. But I want to read a definition so that we're all on the same page about what adultery is. Adultery, voluntary sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. And someone, sorry, between a man... Let me read it again. Voluntary sexual intercourse between a married man and someone other than his wife or between a married woman and someone other than her husband. The scriptures name it, the scriptures condemn it and we ought not to go there. It's as simple and it's as clear as that, folks. So if you know anyone that's engaging in that, tell them to stop. The Bible condemns that. Similarly, fornication. Now, we don't hear that word used very much these days, do we? I wonder why. Just accept it. But in the Christian house, in God's house, we don't. Because we know it's wrong. Let me give the definition of fornication. The sin of fornication is not only defined as illicit sexual intercourse between those who are not married, but also is an umbrella for all other sexual sins as well. That's this definition. So there's no doubt that the word of God denounces these kinds of things as sin. And of course we could list a whole lot more as the Bible describes that. Doesn't mean that we're not tempted in all of these things. If your heart's pumping and you've got breath in your lungs and you're red-blooded, then you will be tempted Jesus himself was. More about that later on. I'll probably talk more about that in the next question here. But again, we know that there are clear examples in the word of God where sin is named and we are warned to flee from it. 
and have the blood of Jesus, which we talked about again, reminded here around the communion table, cleanse us from all sin. So, the, so we have specific commands. But the Bible also gives us general commands about what is sinful as well. For example, uh, you won't find a command, and this is a bit of a silly example, but I hope it brings the point home. You won't find a command saying that you're not to exceed authorised speed limits, for example. But you will find a command that says, and I'm sure we all know this quite well, you will find a command that says this in Romans 13.1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So we need to be in subject to governing authorities who set the speed limits, the laws that we need to obey. To disobey it is wrong before God. Then we have this fantastic, great summary to this first question that we've been looking at here. Just briefly, um, through God's Apostle Paul, when he says this, let me read you these verses from Romans 13, 12 to 14. Probably would have been covered last week. Um, let me just read that to you, the last few verses, 12 to 14. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's what he wants for us. We need to clothe ourselves with him. Put on Jesus, the word tells us. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. One common Bible commentator said this. He says, God grant that we may be preserved from trying to have a clearer standard than the Bible. This is an interesting take. Let me read it again. God grant that we may be preserved from trying to have a clearer standard than the Bible or a more complete set of moral laws than contained in the word of God. That's going to another level, isn't it? And you see, this was the problem that the Pharisees had. And didn't Jesus let them know about that problem they had? A second question that we need to ask ourselves when it comes to these grey areas in our lives is this. So the first question, if you're taking notes, does the Bible condemn my doing this thing? Second question is this, although not necessarily sinful, would my doing this thing lead me into temptation and cause me to sin? That's the second question. Although not necessarily sinful, would my doing this thing lead me into temptation and cause me to sin? The Lord's Prayer. What a beautiful model prayer it is. Look at these magnificent words, Matthew 6, 13. And lead us not into temptation. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And the Lord Jesus plainly taught that we needed to avoid those places. We need to avoid those situations where we are more likely to be tempted and then to give in to that temptation. A lot of it's common sense sanctified common sense 
And the meaning of what Jesus was saying here, it gives in this very vivid and kind of graphic uh, um, illustration here in Matthew seven, uh, Matthew five, sorry, twenty-seven to thirty. We know these words. Let me read them briefly, uh, quickly. You have heard that it was said, "You shall not commit adultery," but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So he's taking this thing seriously. Doesn't expect us to do that literally. I hope you get that. But he's just trying to show us very seriously about this whole business about being involved with temptation and sin and so on and giving into it. And this, is, this story I'm about to share is, is, is probably more relating to the next question that I want to the third question I want to ask, but, but I can remember, distinctly remember being with, a, well it was not that, not that long ago actually, these guys were part of my retreat group, another group of pastors and, and uh, we were meeting together and then we, we decided we wouldn't mind going out for lunch to have some fellowship and to sharing some time together and we were discussing where we might like to go and someone mentioned, well look, there's a club not far from here and we thought, oh okay, but then we became aware of a brother amongst us who came out of a life of gambling addiction to poker machines which we knew this club had and so for his benefit we happily chose to go somewhere else wouldn't you do the same but it's just being aware of these things we didn't want to throw something across his path that could be tempting for him and isn't that what Paul says and that's what he means when he says these magnificent words in, in Romans 15, 1 and 2. Look at this. <laughs> May they bathe us. These words. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbour for their good, to build them up. Isn't that Fantastic. We've got the instruction. What a, what a manual of life we have before us here in the word of God. And we know that there are many Christians who, who have come out of a life of, of, of gambling. We know there are Christians who have come out of a life of alcohol dependency, substance abuse, and all kinds of other abusiveness. We know that they've come out of that. Would it be wise then for him or to her to walk into a pub or a club where the sights and the smells and everything else that's associated with that place fills the air and would it be wise for them to go to that when they've come out of that background probably not neither is it wise nor helpful for other Christians who may not have an issue with any of that to invite them to those kinds of places either particularly in the light of what Paul's saying to us here in Romans 14 and 15 Another writer says this, Each individual must judge for himself, herself, what constitutes a temptation to him or her, and thus what needs to be avoided by them. What may be an overwhelming temptation to one person may be no temptation to another person at all. Fair enough, isn't it? It's just being sensitive, being aware of where we are with each other and what God's saying to us, loving each other, 
caring for their needs more than my own. You know, when I, when I first became a Christian and started to attend a Baptist church, that's where God led me, and I was, didn't know anything about Baptists at all. I didn't even know what a manse was. Can you believe that? Didn't know what a pastor was, really? Or a deacon? Anyway, I won't get in there. But I was led to this Baptist church, and it wasn't long after being involved in the Baptist church that I was made aware that Baptists don't dance. Probably because they, not because they don't want to. Probably some of them can't anyway. But it was because dancing was considered to be sinful. That's the impression that I got clearly to me. We don't, we don't dance. Dancing sinful. Um, now let me say this. The Bible does not teach that dancing is sinful. However... However, most of, have been around, most of us have been around long enough to know that there is dancing and then there is dancing. Scriptures are full of dancing and celebration to God. David danced before the Lord. We know that. Listen to this psalm. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with the tremble and the harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people and crowns the humble with victory. Beautiful when it's done under the Lord. <laughs> I'm not suggesting we start dancing in the church. Look, I'm not saying that. But I just want us to catch the, catch the example here. And, you know, for example, I think a bridal waltz at a wedding is a beautiful part of that celebration. And maybe other kinds of dancing as well. But let me get very specific here. But where dancing becomes sensual, and the dancers, female normally, are clothed in likewise manner, then I must say there wouldn't be too many blokes, if any at all, who would not struggle with the sexual temptation to want to take things further. And then we start struggling with the sin of lust. Do you know what I mean? Am I talking on planet Earth here? You understand what I'm saying? Just watch TV and watch some of the dances that are done in some of the music, the rage shows, whatever these things are. Just, if you're not sure, I wouldn't even ask you to go there. Just take my word for it. There is a lot of sensual dancing out there and the girls that, are, that dance look incredibly amazing and it does play on a bloke's mind. Get real. Don't go there. So what am I saying? Each of us needs to be honest about ourselves. We need to know ourselves and not kid ourselves, not fool ourselves. Know our weaknesses because let, let this be, uh, I, I don't think it's a secret anyway, we need to know our weaknesses because Satan does. Satan knows your weakness. You need to know it too and then do something about it. We need to judge for ourselves what we know. Let me make it personal. What you know, you need to judge for yourself what you know is right for you, what you know is wrong for you before God and stand firm on it. Paul puts it like this. Even though he speaks about sacred days, I want you to see that the principle applies right here in these situations that we're talking about. Paul, in Romans 14, uh, Verse 5, one person considers one day more sacred than the other, another considers every day alike. 
Look at this. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. You need to know yourself. You need to know what's right for you, what's wrong for you, and stand firm on it before the Lord. Bible commentator J.A. Whitmer, Whitmer he, he, on this matter he says this, and he should hold his opinion to the Lord. This is true for any issue where an honest difference of opinion among Christians exists. Maybe right for you, maybe wrong for you. You've got to work that out with God and stand firm on it before the Lord. But again, in terms of, of temptation, clearly it is a very wise person, a very wise person who does not put unnecessary temptations in their own path. And it's a commendable person who will not allow others to judge you on those matters that you have decided is right for you or you have decided is wrong for you. Stand firm on it before God. God's word through the Apostle Paul is pretty clear on that, on that matter. Um, let me just read you a few verses. Romans 14, 14 and 15. Paul says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing in itself... That, sorry, that nothing in, is unclean in itself. But, but, if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat or what you're doing, you are no longer acting in love. Do not buy your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died they're pretty potent words aren't they we need to remember something about love love is not a selfish thing read 1 Corinthians 13 5 love is not self-seeking and this also leads on to the third question which we need to ask ourselves as we navigate our way through these disputable matters, through these opinions among believers. The third question is this. Would my doing this thing lead me to offend a weaker brother or sister? Would my doing this thing lead me to offend a weaker brother or, or sister and cause them to stumble? They're the questions we need to ask ourselves. And we've, and we've, we've basically covered pretty well this, this third question, I think. But just briefly, it seems to me that the Lord is saying to his people, not only are believers in Christ obliged to shun acts of sin, to shun those, the thought life that is not right, or to place themselves on the pathway of temptation. But we also need to be aware of that weaker brother or sister whereby my practices will not be the cause for their stumbling. That's the thing we've got to ask ourselves. And a good rule, a good simple rule to apply in this situation is simply this. If in doubt, don't do it. If you're starting to wrestle with, I, just, I know that I've got a friend and I'm mentoring somebody or someone, or you know, someone who, who you know is, is weaker in the faith 
and you're wondering about what you're doing or what you're going to do when you take them out or whatever it is and you're wrestling with some of those things if in doubt don't do it and Paul talks about that very thing in Romans 14 22 23 have a look at those verses but God's word also says to us in verses 13 therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another instead make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister verse 15 we've read it before hear it again if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat or what you do anything you are no longer acting in love do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Verse 21, this is Romans 14. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Warren Wearsby, I like what he says. And as I sum up, I just want to read what he says here. Paul classified himself with the strong saints as he dealt with the basic problem and the basic problem is selfishness. True Christian love is not selfish. Rather, it seeks to share with others and make others happy. It is even willing to carry the younger Christians to help them along their spiritual development. We do not endure them these are younger Christians. We don't endure them, but we encourage them. I love what he says. Finally, Romans 15, 7 again, and I want to read it from the Amplified Version. Romans 15, 7, Amplified Version. Welcome and receive to your hearts one another. Then, sorry, welcome and receive to your hearts one another then, even as Christ has welcomed and received you for the glory of God isn't that fantastic pretty clear isn't it I don't know about you but I got asked this question are we not eternally grateful that the father has accepted and welcomed us into his family through Christ are we not sometimes around the Lord's table it's good to ponder and say Lord thank you that you brought me out of that situation Thank you that you loved me when I didn't love you. Thank you that you accepted me when I didn't accept you, but you brought me out of that to where I did come to know you. We're eternally grateful to the Father has accepted us and welcomed us into his family through Christ, even though he truly knew us and he knows us. And yet we're still welcomed by him and accepted by him through Christ. If that's the case, and it is, so we likewise ought to love, accept and welcome one another as transformed, adopted and redeemed members of his household. Amen. May God give us wisdom and guidance, fill us with his spirit, with his love that we look out for each other and seek to please them, not ourselves. Let's pray. I'll get you to stand first, folks, if you don't mind, please. Let's stand. Welcome the worship team just to lead us afterwards. Can I just once again just put out the invitation? If anyone's here and 
you want to talk to someone about what we've just shared, you know, God's touching your heart. And that's between you and God. You know, we're here, the pastors are here this morning and others are here that would just love to pray with you or to talk with you. And might be someone just standing beside you. Please take up that opportunity. Father, we give you thanks today for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are a wonderful counsellor. You're the mighty God. You're the Prince of Peace. You're the everlasting Father. Thank you for loving us, accepting us through Christ. Lord, thank you for loving us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Help us to be humbly grateful, Lord. And when we gaze upon you with absolute gratitude, Lord, won't we gaze upon others with a real sense of grace, love and acceptance of our brothers and sisters, longing to see them grow and mature in their faith, more than trying to win an argument or a score, Lord, that we would long that they would grow in their faith and reach their full potential in Christ. That's what we want, Lord, as a congregation, as a church. We're on this transforming journey together. Help us to grab each other by the hand and, and, and move on, press on towards the things of, of, of Christ, Lord. So we thank you, Lord, for your presence with us here today. And we pray, Lord, help us to put into practice these things. God, if there's be some of us that are struggling with issues, help us to put that to you. Maybe to share that with someone else. Have someone pray for us. Perhaps someone to keep us accountable, Lord. All of these things help us, Lord, to grow up into all the things that, that you have for us, we pray. We just bless your wonderful name. Thank you in Jesus' name.